This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting. We plan to take you into some of our favorite bird covers as we talk to the people that hunt them and the organizations that support them. We'll also break down the dogs, guns, and gear used to pursue them, and of course, we'll share the stories that celebrate this American tradition. It's one of those things that you do that, that feels timeless. My dad brought home our first Brittany when I was about 10 years old. The Red Gods are calling, and I must go. These are your stories. You're tuned into the Project Upland Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Larson. Welcome to the show for episode number 62. episode of the Project Upland Podcast is brought to you by our friends at Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, the finest rough grouse and woodcock hunting experience located in northern Minnesota. You haven't experienced grouse camp until you've experienced it at Pine Ridge. And by Dog Trick Callers, bringing you a full line of dog training and handling products and accessories. This month we're talking about the Dogtra 1900S. This is your rock solid everyday training collar fully waterproof receiver and transmitter combined with the 127 simulation level rheostat dial one of my favorite features on all the doctor products find out more about the 1900s at dogtra.com and by yukanuba premium performance dog food made with the highest levels of protein and fat 
to promote lean muscle and sustained energy for peak performance in your bird dog, check out premium performance dog food for hunting dogs at youcanuba.com. And by Gordian Sons Outfitters. Based in Texas, Gordian Sons is the leading hunting and fly fishing outfitter in the U.S., known for stocking best-in-class gear that's sourced from around the globe. Their knowledgeable staff have the expertise to ensure you the best possible time outdoors. Hunting and fly fishing, conservation, Gordian Sons has a passion for all of it. Find out more about them at GordyAndSons.com. And finally, by Dakota 283 Kennels, unparalleled pet protection. Kennels built to last a lifetime. One-piece rotomole design, frame steel door. You got to check out the Dakota 283 Kennels at dakota283.com. And if you decide to purchase one, use the promo code PU50DD. That will get you 50% off a Dine or Dash product. And remember, always free shipping from dakota283.com. All right, this week's winner of the podcast giveaway, Tyler Turner. Tyler, thanks for sharing a recent episode of the Project Upland podcast. He's got a Project Upland t-shirt headed his way, and you could too. All you got to do is make a meaningful contribution to this show. Leave the show a rating. Leave us a review in your podcast app. Subscribe to the podcast. Share the podcast post and or send us some listener feedback. We always love to hear from our listeners. You can email me at nick.larson at northwoodscollective.com. All right, one special announcement today before we get into the interview. An upcoming event on June 14th in Lander, Wyoming. This event is put on by the Wyoming Wildlife Federation. The event is Films of the Feathered. It's a one-day deal. They've got a lot of cool stuff happening, and it all culminates in a film festival where you can see some really cool upland hunting films and even some from Project Upland. My buddy Sam is putting on the event out there in Lander, Wyoming, pulling out all the stops. Got some big-name guests. Ronald Bame from the Hunting Dot Podcast, Holly Heiser, California Waterfowl, Ed Arnett, Kirk Billings, and even lonely old me, yours truly, Nick Larson of Project Up, and I will be there as well. And actually, a late addition, but another guy I'm excited to see, Tyler Webster of the Birds, Boots, and Buds podcast. A lot of folks are going to be there. I've heard from some listeners and some other folks that are going to be at the film festival. I think it's going to be a fun time. So if you are in that area or are planning to be on June 14th, Lander, Wyoming, go to wyomingwildlife.org and look for Films of the Feathered. All right, that's enough. I got a great interview for you today. I had a great time doing it, and I think you're going to love listening to it. My guest today is a champion sporting clay shooter. He's a shooting instructor. He's a man that I caught up with a couple of years ago at a Rough Grouse Society event. He's a phenomenal shot. He's a great instructor, and he's an even cooler guy. Andy Duffy began shooting sporting clays in 1983, like most of us, to become a better shot. Well, he quickly developed a passion for it and a real talent for it. Eventually, he would go on to win the NSCA National Championship title three times, 94, 95, 02, and in 2005, Andy was inducted into the NSCA Hall of Fame. He knows a thing or two about shooting birds, and I asked him all about it on today's show. Let's welcome to the Project Upland Podcast, Andy Duffy. Mr. Andy Duffy. Welcome to the Project Upland Podcast. How are you this evening? I'm well, Nick. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you for asking. And you're on the road, Andy. Where are you headed? Tell us. I'm uh, on a roundabout way. I'm heading up to uh, the U.S. Open at uh, M&M uh, Sporting Clays in Pennsville, New Jersey. 
Now you'll have to forgive my ignorance as far as competitive sporting clay shooting, but is that uh, is the U.S. Open always held there? Is it rotated around? What's the story? No, it uh, it rotates all around the country. We have every year our nationals is in San Antonio, and shoot to that is the U.S. Open, and that that rotates around the country to give folks the opportunity at some point to have a major event in their backyard kind of thing. Okay. How does one qualify for the U.S. Open? Is it, you know, that that name kind of lends itself to the sort of the style tournament that it is. I imagine that, you know, an amateur can kind of work their way up and get there, but obviously there's some professional shooters there too. Yeah, no, Sporting Clays is, uh, is really kind of, uh, it's unique in a, in a way that, I mean, you can be, you know, a rank amateur and be on the squad with a world champion. Uh, you know, basically what gets you in the U.S. Open is, you know, paying your entry fee. So it's, uh, you know, it's really kind of a uh, democratic sport like that. You know, you pay your money and you take your chances. Uh, sure. And there's, you know, there's guys there that are awfully, awfully good. And that's all they do is shoot sporting clays. Um, back in the day when I started, uh, most of us had regular jobs. And, uh, and you know, we came you know, we worked all week and then came to the events, you know, just as regular working folks. There was very, very few professional shooters. Right. Not that there's a huge number of them around now, but, you know, there's substantially more around than when I started. Yeah, I actually, I've learned a little bit about it just from listening to uh, your buddy Justin's podcast, Behind the Break. And I've heard David Radulovich talk a little bit about kind of the the dynamics of, you know, professional, I'm doing air quotes, professional sporting clays. And uh, he's talked about that. So I have learned a little bit, but yeah, it would be interesting. I mean, if you could pay your money and get in the tournament, but it's, it's uh, self limiting a little bit because uh, somebody could, could put their money down, but they're going to be shooting against Andy Duffy and guys like David Radulovich. Well, it's a lot scarier to shoot against David Radulovich anymore than Andy Duffy. (laughs) Yeah. David's uh, I think one of the youngest world fit ass championships ever champions ever uh he's a good guy too yeah he's a, he's a dedicated bird hunter he's got a little english cocker named bella excellent and uh, he likes to chase rough grouse and woodcock and i guess the occasional pheasant no kidding i'm gonna I, i've heard him talk a little bit about upland hunting on uh on that podcast but uh maybe you'll have to put me in touch with him would be uh i'm sure the listeners could learn something from him as well yeah it helps with the model 2120 game love it gotta love yeah. that well, Andy, uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about uh, we're gonna talk about shooting today, and we'll talk a little bit about your history. Um, and I think that's kind of where I want to start. So, you know, again, forgive my ignorance on on you know the, being r- too knowledgeable on on sporting clays, but I do know that you're a champion sporting clays shooter, and you're a wing shooting instructor. Tell us a little bit about your background, kind of how you got into shooting, and how you sort of wound up in the position that you're in today. And, you know, you, you've been fortunate to, to make a pretty good, uh, pretty good living out of it. Well, it's uh, for sure a, a product of my father's upbringing. You know, my dad was uh, kind of a city kid that, you know, just hated the city. And, you know, the first thing he did when, uh, when he got old enough to, and he had a family was he moved us out to the country and uh, he was really a dedicated bird dog guy. So he had labs and setters. And every now and then he'd have a Springer. Springers always drove him crazy, though. He just he never had the knack for training a Springer. <laughs> but he he was pretty good with the labs, and and he you know fair good with the setters. Um, but you know he was a avid bird hunter, and I as you know from a young age was you know ten years old I started you know shooting pigeons over 
you know, his bird dogs when we were, you know, in training. So that was my first exposure to shotgun shooting. My, uh, my first love really was, you know, I started, uh, hunting small game with a slingshot, you know, and that was, I never realized how much of an impact that had on me, you know, but I got a wrist rocket when I was a little kid. And, you know, the first thing I did was, you know, after shooting tin cans for about 20 minutes is I was looking for a rabbit or a squirrel to bag. <laughs> and, uh, it was really remarkable how fast I got to putting meat on the table with that thing, you know, and, and, you know, after that, all I cared about was, you know, getting a more efficient tool, you know, so that my dad had a Sheridan air rifle and I had to pump that thing up, you know, so that kind of made a man out of me, you know, just pumping that. And, uh, you know, of course the next thing after that was a 22 and that's, that was, you know, how I got into hunting. So the, uh, the shotgun thing was a little different. Uh, I, uh, I had a friend of mine in the Finger Lakes region of New York that liked to hunt woodchucks. And uh, I went up there to do some varmint shooting with him and uh, found that there were rough grouse all over the place. And so I, you know, we hunted them there one day and I brought my dad up with his setter and we moved 40, 40, we had 40 flushes before lunchtime. And uh, I think we bagged three birds, which was really pitiful because we had good shots at a lot of them. <laughs> and uh, that, led to one thing, you know, one thing led to another, but a sporting clays range in Sussex, New Jersey, which was about 30 minutes from where I lived in Middletown, uh, opened up and I started going to shoot sporting clays to get better at grouse shooting. And, uh, I went to a tournament down in Maryland at a place called Hopkins game farm in Kennedyville, Maryland. I shot a tournament there and I just had so much fun. I was completely hooked and just, you know, went absolutely crazy. You know, I had no no filter or, or breaks, you know, I just spent all my money on shells and, and targets and in spite of myself, I ended up getting good. I, I did have some really good coaches though. Uh, there's a fellow named Gary Herman in, uh, in, uh, what's the name of that town? I can't think of it. It's upstate New York. Um, yeah. But anyway, he, I came to his attention and, uh, he was my first formal coach and he really put me on the map. Um, so that was pretty much my Genesis. That's yeah. what happened. What's, what is the secret, Andy, to shooting a wrist rocket? Well, if uh, shooting a slingshot is about doing everything consistently, yeah. uh, if you if you load the pouch so that it's equal on either side, then uh, all you have to do is is draw it back to a, a consistent anchor point, and you'll develop the ability to to feel where the shot's going to go. And that's really very similar to how you shoot a shotgun. You know, it's you're, there's a visual component. But it's not like a rifle where you have a you know set of crosshairs or a front or a back sight you yep. know that's so precise and aiming. So basically, it's uh, it's very similar to shooting a, a longbow as well. You know, you sight over the arrow. You're not looking at the arrow, but you know where it's pointing. And when it feels right, you get off the string clean. You know, you get off the pouch of the slingshot clean. Uh, you bring the gun into your face consistently, and and your brain's ability to point comes into play. It's all about form. You know, whatever you're going to do. You know, good form is the key. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially when you don't have sights involved. I do recall I had a wrist rocket when I was younger, and I have a memory that has stuck with me till this day. And it must have been after the first time my dad took me grouse hunting because I, I, I had a knack or I had an interest in grouse. And, you know, we lived in town here in Duluth, and there were grouse around, but I don't think I really knew you know, I didn't have real high expectations, but one, I remember one day my buddy and I, we got on our bikes, we started riding this gravel road behind my house and 
not a hundred yards down the road, I looked up and saw a grouse on the side of the road. And as we moved closer, the bird walked into the woods. We got off our bikes. I walked in there with my wrist rocket. I walked in, I don't know, 10, 20 yards. And there was this grouse sitting on a log. I had, I had a, this was probably my first mistake. I picked up a rock off the side of the road that was kind of misshapen. And I loaded that in the wrist rocket and I pulled back and I shot pretty quick. And I remember I hit the log just below the grouse. And of course the grouse flushed and took off. But I think that's the only time I've ever shot at a grouse with a wrist rocket. And I did miss, but I was close, Andy. Yeah, well, that's, you know, that's trial and error. You know, that's how it works. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, the thing about it for me, uh, you know, I got to the place where, you know, my father was a guy that, you know, he had plenty of experience. You know, his father was from Ireland. And uh, when he came to this country, he just, you know, got completely into hunting and fishing. And he would okay. take his boys and take them out to the country. And, you know, one of the things that he taught him was how to see a rabbit. And the whole thing about seeing a rabbit is seeing his eye. Yeah. That's the thing that really stands out about a rabbit. You know, you, if you're, if you don't look at a rabbit's for a rabbit's form, the eye stands out. And, you know, when you're really looking at that eye, that's the key to, to getting the, you know, your projectile, whether it's a ball bearing or a rock or whatever, to go where you're looking is to intensely see that target. And it's the same thing, you know, when a bird gets up. You know, when that when that bird gets up, if you're if you're looking at the whole bird, and, and I've got a friend of mine's an English uh, uh, gamekeeper, his name is Simon Owen, and uh, Simon told me that more hens are killed every year on the on his drives than cockbirds, and it's his theory that because the cockbirds have so much more tail feathers in proportion to their body, sure. that people tend to shoot them farther back and you know shooting their tail. But the hens are a shorter, more compact bird, so more pellets wind up in the front end of the bird, which you know puts it in the back. So it's the same thing, you know. When you're when I'm looking for a grouse, I'm trying to see his eye. When that when I hear the wings, I'm looking for the movement. But even beyond that, I'm trying to see its eye. Now I probably see the eye in 20% of the cases, you know, of the the uh, opportunities I get. Sure. But if I don't see the eye, I'll see the beak or the crest of the head. And, you know, if I don't see that, then, you know, it's what it is for grouse hunting. You know, they just they put enough cover between you and them that you couldn't get a good look at them. Yeah. But I've killed lots of grouse, you know, just shooting the blur as it's going through the bushes, too. So, yeah, that's why it's so important. And we all wear orange. We all got to know where everybody is. You know, that's I'm to the point now I won't hunt. You know, if I'm with a group of guys and there's some guys that are not wearing orange, I won't hunt with them. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty sound advice. I think uh, a little orange goes a long way. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. we're going to definitely talk about about shooting more birds but do you uh i gotta ask do you think you've ever ever flushed 42 grouse before lunch since that day well i've been the uh i've been the the uh shooting instructor for the rough grouse society i did it for 18 years last year was the first time i hadn't done it since i guess 2000 or so okay and uh and i've seen you know up there around uh it's uh, Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Yep. I've been up there and, and moved 60 in a day. So, you know, that's as good as it gets, really. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, that's that's stuff dreams are made of. You know, I haven't, I haven't seen those kind of days. I mean, 40 is an amazingly good day. Uh, last few times I've been, we've moved 25 and 30. That's been, it's, you know, it seems to have been down for the last four or five years. Yeah. But uh, but I've had sixty bird days that were just unbelievable. I mean, you know, it's it's hard to go ten minutes without a, a point or a flush. Right. Really yeah. Absolutely. Great fun. 
yeah. Nirvana. Yeah, that sounds uh, that sounds like a blast. And I know there's there's probably people listening that you know they even hear twenty five thirty and they're and they're shaking their head. I I kind of have a benchmark. You know, if I, if I flush twenty grouse in a day, I mean I'm having a good day for sure. But you know, you get up to thirty and and even forty, which I've had. You know, I could probably count on one hand the number of times that's happened. But that's a that's a good good day in the grouse woods. We uh, where I hunted around New York, around Middletown, New York. Uh, you know, it's, I, I ran a trap line for years, and and I would know from run, being in the woods and running the trap line, I would know where I would run across grouse regularly. So my dad or my uncle would say, okay, where should I hunt? And I'd tell them, go down. I saw two down along the creek, you know, that kind of thing. You know, so you, you just you start to learn the bird's habits. You learn where they like to be at what time of year, and it changes. You know, and that's really, that's so important to be successful is to really know the, the bird and its habits. You know, that's, that's something that, you know, no matter what happens, when, when a dog goes on point, you can look out in front of them, get an idea, okay, if I was a grouse, I'd be there. And if I was there and the dog was there, I'm going to want to go either there or there to the security cover. And, you know, right away that sets up how you come into the dog. So just to walk into the dog without any kind of strategy like that, you know, more often than not, that bird's going to beat you. But if you're, if you're thinking strategically, if you know the bird and its habits and know how pressure effects and pressure is the dog on point uh how you commit to that into that dog is you know makes all the difference as to whether you're going to get a shot or if you're just going to see two wingtips you know find a tree yep yeah i'm glad you i'm glad you went there and since we're since we're talking about it let's because i have uh <clears throat> i've heard you talk about this a little bit before but approaching uh approaching you know dog on point specifically in the grouse woods and this is something that we've i've talked to people on this podcast before it's definitely of interest to me and and I think the listeners, you know, what, what is your method? So obviously we're, we're assuming a few things. We're, we're assuming we got a pointing dog on the ground. The dog is on point. There's lots of variables. The cover could look a million different ways, but what is your general strategy for coming in and utilizing pressure to your advantage, Andy? Well, it's, uh, it's really a, a remarkable thing. You know, where, where I started hunting, we would find five or six birds a day. And we had a rule and we'd find one bird and when he flushed, you know, if we didn't get a shot at him, we'd watch where he went and we'd go in that direction and find him again. And if you had three chances at that bird and he beat you all three times, you went and found another bird. Three, okay. You know, you didn't, you didn't follow him more than three times. Cause honestly, if he didn't, if he didn't hole up in a real dense patch of pines, then you know, you could chase him until you, you got him. Right. You know, you could move him out of his comfort zone or out of his, or get him, you know, positioned on the edge of the cover so that when you came in, he was, he was compromised, but three was a fair number, you know? So we would move like six birds a day, but we'd get 18 flushes for those three birds. And, and each bird contact was, you know, a, a chapter of experience and, the things that you learn, you know, that you start to see how they think and how they're trying to get away from you. One of the things that we found to be really important was how to come through a cover. I mean, if you came into a cover with the with the sun in your face, no matter which way the breeze was blowing, if the, the sun was in your face, you couldn't see anything to shoot. So yeah. that was something, you know, you really tried not to do. Uh, and, you know, there was also, you know, there'd be heavier cover the escape cover be on one side of the of the uh cover you're hunting and then there'd be 
you know, the feet cover, and then there'd be a little creek there, you know. So you, there'd be places where they would feed and loaf. And then if you came from that cover toward the, the, the thick stuff, they would all, you know, just either run or fly into the thick stuff. So what we tried to do is we tried to hunt the cover from the thick stuff out. So we got between the security cover and the feeding cover or the loafing cover and then, you know, hunted from there. So, you know, just how you came through a cover was going to majorly impact your success. Uh, beyond that, what I see folks do is the, the biggest mistake I see people make, If especially if there's two of you hunting behind a dog. My, my uncle had a short hair named Ziggy, and he used to call him the Luger. And Ziggy would, he would hunt, and, you know, he'd point a quail or a pheasant or, you know, woodcock, and, but when he got on a grouse, he would start to cat foot. You know, he'd start lifting his feet and just kind of creeping in on, on the grouse. And you, he only ever did that with rough grouse. <laughs> But when he started doing that, boy, your your heart started to pound because you know, I mean, he knew how to handle. Yeah. Well, when Ziggy went on point, one guy went to the dog and the other guy looped around out in front. And you tried. Now, here's the thing: I, I've tried to show this to people in at the uh, at the Rough Grouse Society, and I'd say, okay, when you're the guy who's you know, we hunt a lot of two tracks there, you know, we'd be walking down the two track and the dog goes on point. Yeah. And sometimes he's near the trail. Sometimes he's farther back in. Well, say he's 30, 35 yards back in the cover. Well, one guy goes to the bell. The other guy runs down the trail and then, you know, makes a left and then comes in in front of the dog. Now the whole point here is to get the bird between you and your partner, because if you both go to the back of the dog, pressure is going to make that bird as he hears you coming, he's going to be walking away. But when you're way out in front, and I'm talking about the, the rule of thumb is when you, if you're the guy that's going to be the flanker, if you're going to go out in front, this is called the classic pincers movement in military parlance. So when you make <laughs> the move around front to come back toward the dog, when you get the first urge to turn, look to back to where your partner was standing in the trail and go that same distance again, because everybody goes too short and they wind up going into the dog. So I, I try and get 60 to 75 yards out in front of the point. So now when I turn and come back, now the bird, even though he's, he's on, the dog's on point, the bird's there, typically they're walking away from the dog. And if you come in at 30 yards in front, you're going to walk right into the bird. Yeah. But if you come in at 60 or 70 yards, you're on the other side. Now the dog is looking, now the bird is looking at the dog and your partner, and he's also looking at you, and you're, you've caught him in the middle, and he doesn't know what to do until – you know, you get close enough that he has to do something. So he's going to go right or left. So your partner is going to get a shot or you're going to get a shot. Again, very important that everybody's wearing orange. Yeah. So this is strategically how you come into the dog. If you've got a partner, but you can do the same thing if it's just you and your dog. Right. If the dog goes on point, I always know which way the breeze is blowing. So when the dog's on point, I've got a good idea where that bird is. And, you know, as I come into the point, I can see which way the bird which way the dog is looking, which, you know, invests more of how I come in. I, but I always do the same thing. I make a big loop and come in, in from in front of the dog. First of all, if you come in right through next to the dog, a lot of times the dog will get, you know, little antsy and come off point because you're walking right up through on top of them. Sure. Always better for the dog to see you out front, see, you know, you coming into them. And that's, you know, same deal. The, the dog is pressured for the bird. So when you're way out and coming in toward the dog, the bird is caught between you and the dog. You know, one thing to remember about grouse, what eats an awful lot of them 
are avian predators, you know, hawks and owls. So a, a grouse will, you know, when a gus hawk is coming through a patch of cover and he sees that grouse, the grouse will run around a tree and flush from there to put some, you know, buy a little time, put a little space between him and that hawk. So he puts something between them. So that's, that's, you know, how, how many times have you seen, you've heard grouse oh, yeah. walk over and you see a, you see a wingtip on the right side of the tree and a wingtip on the other, you know, left side of the tree. Yeah. We've all seen that. See the, well, that's what they're doing. You know, they're, they're trying to get a head start on you. Well, when the dog is pressure and now you're looped out in front, you know, he's, he's really kind of screwed because which, you know, which one does he put the tree in between? He's just going to flush, you know, and that's, you know, you've taken away one of his tools for getting a head start on you. Yeah. All strategy. Yep. Yeah, definitely. All strategy. Yeah. You take away his option. You know, if you come up behind the dog, he's got, you know, 180 degrees plus uh, to escape. Whereas if you can, if you can come in the other side, then, you really narrow down that window. It makes a lot of sense. The The tricky part, I think, which is what I love about how you draw attention to the the distance part is that, yeah, we, we get in front of our dog. You know, I've, I've tried it. I've done it. I get in front of my dog and we all have that urge because we want to make it happen. We're excited and you have that urge to turn in, but it's at that moment, go a little bit further, you know, go twice as far. That's uh that I yeah, think is a little bit further. It's substantial. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, it's really funny. My my uncle and I used to hunt a place in uh, in New York. It was we, it was the Whipple Road cover, and it was a, a sportsman's club called Shawangun Fishing Game Club that used to stock pheasants there. And we would we would go and chase some pheasants around. You know, mainly it's really good for the dog, and and we like to eat pheasants too. So we ate a lot of pheasants. But anyway, this uh, Whipple Road cover had a roughed grouse that lived in some tag elders that abutted a pretty dense patch of pines. And it got to the point where when we pulled in the parking lot and slammed the car door, you'd hear that bird flush. <laughs> he, he just had a PhD in hunter. He knew what was going to happen and he just wasn't going to give you a chance. And uh, I told my uncle, I said, tomorrow at two o'clock in the afternoon, I want you to drive into this parking lot, and slam the car door. And I came from the back of the, the cover. I came through this big swamp and I cat-footed into these pines, so I was standing at the edge of the tag elders when my uncle slammed the car door, and this bird flushed up over my head, and I killed it. And I tell you what, I never felt so bad, because it took two of us to outsmart a bird that had a brain the size of a walnut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Boy, he was a big grouse, great big grouse. That's a funny story, Andy. Now, obviously, you have a, you've hunted a lot of grouse, but I know you've done... Uh, you know, has upland hunting been a constant thread throughout? You got started early. Did it stick with you the whole time when you were competitive shooting? Uh, you know, there was a there was a point there where I I got so into uh, competitive shooting that I didn't really hunt all that much. Okay. Uh, there was probably a ten year period there. Now, you know, I'm thirty years into a into a shooting career. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I I go four or five times a year every year. You know, I, every time I'd stop and see Dad, we'd go turn a dog loose and chase a grouse, but there was a, you know, probably a 10-year period where I was really, you know, wound up in the, in the competition that I, you know, I didn't really, I didn't have my own bird dog. I mean, heck, I had a Rottweiler for a while, you know, he was a great companion dog, but I, I didn't really hunt all that much. And then I just, I got back in it, you know, I started getting bird dogs again and started chasing them and I've been avid ever since. Uh, yeah, one of the most fun things, I moved to Montana and, uh, you know, we chasing Huns and sharp tails, you know, that was a, that was our two species of birds that we never came across, you know, back east. Yep. 
and uh, you know they had really great fun with a, a good pointing dog. Um, then I had a great springer too. I had a, a springer named Zach. That gosh, I mean, if you could see the pile of birds I shot over that dog, you could park a pickup truck behind him. Um, <laughs> he was just—he was incredible. You know, he really. I've had some really, really amazing dogs, and you know, mainly I think one of the things about me is I—I I don't have a lot of dogs, so the, the ones I get get a lot of work. You know, I, it's not like you know I've got a whole string of dogs that I I run. I've got you know basically I have two. I've got a setter in a lab now that are quite young. My setters, uh, these two in my lab is, is just turned a year on April 13th. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I think, you know, they with me 24 seven, you know, yeah. so they get a lot of, you know, I think more than anything, it's, they just, they're with me so much. They want to have such a desire to please that, you know, once you show them what they're, what you, what's expected of them, they, they just kill themselves to do it for you. Yeah. I got a taste of the the Montana hunting last year and, and prairie birds, you know, specifically, I did not shoot a hunt, which I'm, I'm hoping to, uh, hoping to do that when I go back this year, but that's, uh, that's pretty fun. You know, growing up a grouse hunter, kind of like yourself getting out there and doing that kind of hunting, it's a little bit different, but that's, uh, that's a blast. Do you make it back out there? Do you, you don't still live in Montana, do you? Well, I, I sold my house there about five years ago okay. and I, basically I live in a horse trailer. And so when the season's on, and my, my address is still Montana. Yeah. Okay. But I, I travel so much and do lessons, you know, I'm, I'm just, you're mobile of the, uh, of the continent. Yeah. Think of that. <laughs> um, awesome. One of the things, uh, you know, it's really funny, you know, as much as I love hunting rough grouse, uh, the first limit I ever killed a rough grouse in Montana, uh, I did it with a, with a longbow. Really? And, uh, yeah, the first one I killed, I killed with the arrow in my hand. I was leading my horse down off a mountain, and, and I just happened to look down. I was about to step on it, and I, I was carrying my longbow, and I took an arrow out, and I knocked it. And it was like it was at my feet, and I just took the arrow off the string, and I just whacked them on the head and had them for dinner that night. <laughs> you know, but there were there was about a dozen of them right around me there, and I just, I just you know, I killed five with a, with a blunt. And, uh, you know, that's what we ate for the next couple of nights, but... But, you know, the rough grouse in Montana just aren't a big priority. You know, if you're if you go to a place and gun them a couple of times, they get smart just like anywhere else. But yeah. uh, most of the ones that I, I've run across in Montana, they, you know, the, the wrist rocket would probably be a better tool. Yeah, I've heard that a little bit. I've, I've uh, never seen it myself, but I definitely. Uh, yeah, they they respond to uh, to pressure just like let's just like everywhere else. I'm sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah I mean, once they hear that gun go off a couple of times, they, they catch on pretty quick. But. Hardly anybody really hunts them out there. You know, most of the time the guys carry a twenty-two pistol and shoot their head off with a with a twenty-two. You know that. Yeah, for just camp for meat. You know, just for camp meat yeah. more than anything. But the uh, the thing about it out there, uh, huns and and uh, sharp tails are you know out in the prairies are really great. Yep. But the real challenge is chuckers. Okay. I got into chucker hunting. I've got a friend of mine out there named Skip Zappy, and and uh, he started taking me, gosh, five or six years ago, and. And I want to tell you that chucker hunting is some kind of sporty. That's what really, they say. Yeah, I mean, it's, you've got to have a pair of lungs and you've got to have legs, which I only have one at the moment. But uh, oh yeah, I forgot about that. We might have to have you tell tell the tell the story about uh, about your leg, Andy. Uh, well, a friend of mine down in Florida is a herpetologist, <laughs> and uh, he was telling me about a endangered snake down there where the range is in Palm City, uh, South Florida Shooters is in Palm City, Florida. And uh, my buddy said that the Indigo Racer is, uh, you know, that's a, 
pretty viable population in that area, and they're endangered. And this fellow's involved in a, a uh, breeding captivity, and, you know, when they get to a certain size, release them, you know, trying to reestablish the population. Told me if you happen to see one, you know, really appreciate, you know, if you could catch it for me. So I had a really, really nice specimen crossing the trail in front of me, and I was on a ATV that was doing about 30, and I yelled stop and then got focused on this snake. And the thing about them is they're lightning fast. I mean, you can't outrun one, you know, and it was just laying there by the side of the trail. And I didn't realize that my buddy hadn't heard me say stop. And I stepped off this thing at 30 miles an hour and uh, broke my my tibia and fibula, uh, oh. fibula on, my, uh, on my right leg. I mean, uh, yeah, I was, I've never broken a bone before, you know, but I, as soon as I stepped off and I felt the snap, I mean, it snapped like a popsicle stick. Oh, man. And, uh, and I, so he says... He comes around, you okay? I said, no, my leg's broke. He said, you know, and I point at it, and it was just, it took a 45-degree angle down right at the top of my hiking boot. One and, of those uh, guys. So I've been, recovering, I've been recovering from that ever since, but everything's gone well. Like, outside of all the titanium I have in my leg, now it's uh, it's gone pretty uh, uneventfully. So, Is it stronger than it was before? No. Uh, <laughs> decidedly not. Uh, I'm still in the... I'm supposed to be in the boot. I'm, uh, okay. I'm walking without it more and more, but uh, but I can't press my weight like I can with my left foot. Uh, I can't lift my body off the ground, you know. So when I I'm limping pretty seriously, but uh, they they expect it'll come back. Yeah. Before too long. So. So you just got to get up to the you just got to get up to the shooting station, and then you're all right. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> uh, you know the the left foot is the one that's got seventy percent of your weight on it. You know, thirty percent on the back one. So. Sure. Yeah, I've been shooting a little bit. The, the worst thing is I, I separated my clavicle as I when I hit. Oh. And, and and my right shoulder is actually in a lot more pain than my leg is. But I've been doing a lot of push-ups, and they hurt like hell, but, but it's been coming back. So. Yeah, those help. So did you catch the snake? That's what everybody wants to know. <laughs> uh, when I saw my foot pointing 45 degrees mm. wrong, uh, the snake hunt was over. Priorities, yeah. Yeah, it was all over at that moment. <laughs> That's uh, that's a fair point. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those kind of things, you know. You just, uh, you know, I got so focused on the snake that I just didn't factor in that we were still ripping right along, you know. You know, it's just one for a silly mistake. We wouldn't make any, but you know, that was mine. So. Well, it's just like you and the the eye of the grouse, and uh, probably the the leading edge of that clay pigeon, Andy. You got that laser focus. Yeah, sometimes that can work against you. Found that out. <laughs> Evidently, yeah. <laughs> well, let's use that as a segue, Andy. And you talked about weight percentage on the leg, front and back, and we're talking about focus. I think that's a good segue into shooting a little bit. And you do, you give lessons, you provide shooting instruction. I did see you uh, provide some shooting instruction. You were uh, you were showing off a little bit, doing some trick shots and some cool stuff up at the Rough Girl Society National Hunt a few years ago. But it really was. Uh, it was cool, and I and I really enjoyed it. So, lay the foundation for us when you go to a place like that, and you're kind of speaking to a general audience, which you are on this podcast. Let's talk about wing shooting and kind of lay a foundation. And if you have, you know, if you have a specific way that you like to do it, and and talk about it, you know, feel free. But I'll uh, I'll try to ask the right questions to sort of get you know your methodology. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, I when I work with folks, I I always teach. You know, in sporting clays, you're allowed to to use a free gun mount. Okay. And that means you can have it in your shoulder when you call pull, or you can have it low, either or. Uh, I find that it's a it's a much more 
useful thing to learn how to shoot from a low gun position right off the bat. And I liken it to learning how to drive a car. If you learn on a standard where you got to work a clutch and shift and, you know, work the accelerator at the same time, you can always drive an automatic. But if you learn how to shoot a gun, the first thing you do is put the gun in your face and get it all mounted up like a trap or a skeet shooter and then call pull. Well, that's like learning to drive the, you know, the automatic. Sure. I, you know, when time comes for you to drive the standard, you know, there's a little bit of an issue there. So I find that when I teach people the fundamentals of how to move the gun into your face at the same time you're moving toward the target with your front hand, I find that uh, it's it's a much more natural progression to then teach somebody how to shoot from a mounted gun position because it's a viable tool when you shoot sporting clays. You know, you get a big long trapper. There's a reason why every trap shooter in America shoots fully mounted gun. So knowing how is an important thing to build a good score on a on a competitive course. But, you know, for me, there's also places where if, uh, you know, I'm going to shoot a big batu, which is a great big arcing target. And, you know, big arcing targets, I find that if I use my, my front hand to move along with the bird, I find that I feel the line of that arc much more accurately than if the gun is mounted in my shoulder. Think about it this way. When the gun is mounted, your hands are out of play. Think about a, a, a tank turret, you know, the, the big gun on a tank. Yep. The turret has to move. Well, when your gun is fully mounted, your hands are out of play. Your whole body has to move the gun. And there's a reason for that. You know, overswinging on a trap bird is a very real problem. That's why trap shooters shoot it like a tank turret. But to have the ability to use your hands to find an awkward line like an arc would be. Guns never move in, a, in, a, in an arc. They move in a straight line. So what you're doing as that target's arcing over, you're, you're thinking of a spot out in front which is the line that target's going to travel in. And I find that to be able to use my hands to go to that spot is much more intuitive than having the gun locked in my shoulder. So there are places where a low gun approach on a sporting clays course is actually an advantage to a gun that's fully mounted, which plays right into bird shooting. I mean, you're not going to walk around the court, you know, walk around behind a bird dog with a gun in your face waiting for something to get up. Right. Now that getting really tired, making everybody else around you really, really nervous. <laughs> yep. So, you know, so being able to bring the gun into your face from a low gun position is a is a very important skill. Um, there's any number of YouTube videos that you can watch uh, and see, you know, that demonstration. It's all in the front hand. If you get your front hand moving, the end of the gun will move with the bird. If you mount with your back hand, you'll see that the gun will seesaw on your front hand, which means the barrel will dip offline of the target. Well, whichever way you move the gun, you generate momentum on that plane. If your front hand is doing the move, it's moving with the bird. If your back hand is doing the mount, the barrel's coming off the line and then coming back up into the line and very often results in a miss over the top. So I've, you know, just watching my dad over the years, you know, he's never had any formal uh, shotgun instruction. What he has is being a bird hunter. And what happens is, you know, when you move your front hand first, you get there faster. And just from trial and error, you know, bird hunters tend to develop a much more natural move to the target than somebody that started, you know, from a trapper or a skeet background. And now that sporting clays has progressed to the point where it has, there's there are lots of really good instructors. You know, we talked about David Radulovich before. He's an excellent instructor. Yeah. And, you know, so they're... <laughs> You know, his, the fellow that instructed him is a guy named Wendell Cherry. You know, Wendell Cherry has some of the, I mean, it's like, it's a ballet watching him shoot, you know. So, you know, you, you can really, you can spend 
20 minutes watching him shoot a sporty clays course and learn so much about how to move a gun to a target. And, you know, those are, those are things that, you know, when you play the game of sporting clays and you get around those kind of shots, you know, all you got to do is pay attention a little bit. And, you know, very often those guys are, you know, they're really nice guys. And, you know, if you wait till after their competitive round and just ask them a question, they're more than happy to answer. Sure. You know, so, you know, there's hanging around a sporting clays course, you know, you'll find people that are pretty good right off the bat. And, you know, very often there are people that started, you know, like me when I was 10 years old, shooting pigeons over my dad's bird dogs. You know, you learn that stuff, you know, from a in a pretty young age, it, it, you learn it at a different level. You know, it's it becomes more a part of you than something that you learned later on in life. Yeah. We'll pause today's show for just a moment to let you know that this episode is also brought to you by Trinity Kennels, home of the Epanuel Breton, a.k.a. French Brittany Spaniels from Trinity Kennels are from champion bloodlines, field-tested and family-approved for over 30 years, coming from the most prestigious and elite French bloodlines as well as American champions, Trinity Kennels is committed to producing premier Epanuel Bretons for the field trialer and foot hunter alike. Now, let's get back to today's episode of the Project Upland Podcast. Yeah, we as a, we as adults tend to be bad or difficult learners sometimes, don't we? Well, think about it. You know, when you when you first start, you know, you get a twenty two or, or the air rifle that, that I started with. You know, the first thing you do is you put it into your shoulder, and then you line the sights up so it's mount, and then, you know, get the barrel in the right place, and then shoot. So it's mount, move, shoot. Well, when you're shooting a shotgun... If you mount like that to start, if you mount first, that bird's gone. You have to get the barrel moving with the bird to make efficient use of your time. So, you know, that's where it, it naturally happens. I, you know, I was 10 years old when I started shooting a shotgun. So I learned, okay, so rifles, you know, you mount first and then line it up. But shooting a shotgun, you better get your front hand moving the way the bird's going. And you learn that without any real, you know, it's not something that really has to be explained to you because you miss if you don't do that. Yeah. So, you know, very often you can, you can learn that. And, you know, my, my dad was a guy, he'd pick up his gun and wave it around, you know, before the bird season. And, you know, he'd practice his mount. Well, you know, as a little kid, I was, you know, my dad's left eye, he's right-handed, but he's left eye dominant. So he shoots off his left shoulder. Well, you know, I had a little lever action cap gun. I actually remember this. I think I was five or six years old. And this is probably one of my earliest memories. But I remember picking it up and holding it just like my dad did. But when I, when I put my, the gun into my face, I cocked my head way over to get my right eye over the middle of the gun. So I was kind of laying over the gun. <laughs> and I remember him laughing and saying, no, you got to hold it on this side. Well, he knew what a master eye was and he could see that mine was my right. So, he, you know, I mean, what if I had a father that, you know, didn't know anything about master eyes? Like, you know, okay, close, close your right eye and do it. You know, well, right. yeah, I'd probably still be a pipe fitter today, which not, you know, not saying that would have been a bad thing, but trust <laughs> me, this is a much cooler way of making a living. <laughs> Now, Andy, you mentioned a couple times bringing the gun to your face, and I think that's significant because you never said bring the gun to your shoulder. Talk about that dynamic a little bit. And, and it, it plays into, you know, we're not mounting first. We're not jamming it into our shoulder. Well, you know, one of the things about, about sporting clays, you know, you hear people talk about, you know, why would you miss that? Because why I lifted my head. I, I disagree. Most, more often than not, what happens is people go a little too fast, and they pull the trigger. You know, the gun makes it into their shoulder pocket, but – they didn't take the time to to get a little bit of cheek pressure on it. So when the, when the shot detonates, they take this mental image of there being a gap between their cheekbone and the top of their comb. So right away they say, "Well, I lifted my head." Well, that 
makes you think that you've got cheek pressure and then lifted your head above it. No, you just never got cheek pressure to start. So it's easy to get the gun up into your shoulder, but it's it takes just a split second longer to get it into your shoulder and cheek. So, you know, having that cheek pressure is what, you know, it's like the backside of your 22. If you raise that backside, you're raising your point of impact. So getting, you know, and I, I have my bird gun set up. It's, it's probably a quarter inch lower than what my target gun is. You know, when you're standing there on a course and you're ready to shoot, you're ready to get cheek pressure, you know, so it's, you're not surprised by anything. Well, I have a little, I've got an old Parker a VHE. It's a, an original 20 gauge that I, I actually got a set of uh, Parker Repro barrels for, and those are 16. So the 16 barrels are modded full, and the 20 are skeet and modified. So I use my 20 gauge for grouse and woodcock and quail, you know, anything reasonably close like that. And then when I hunt out west, I use the 16 mod full. But that gun is substantially lower in the comb because when a bird gets up, you're looking for a brown bird in the brown woods. You never get the same kind of cheek pressure on the gun like you do when you're shooting targets. At least I don't anyway. But so I just set it up to be a little different. All I got to do is barely get that gun anywhere near my face. It's just barely grazing it. And it's shooting where I'm looking. And when you and, say lower, do you mean more drop at heel, more drop at comb? Well, it's it's parallel. So from the nose to the comb, it's a quarter inch lower than my target gun. Okay. So it's just it's just to allow for when the gun gets anywhere reasonably close to my face, I'm looking right down the barrel. You're looking down the barrels. Okay. Yeah. So I might have a much more heads erect posture. And, you know, a lot of times if you look at those old side-by-sides, right. the old L.C. Smiths and, and Foxes and that that had a mile a drop, back in the day, you know, they used to shoot side-by-sides. They used to shoot those guns differently. They would lay the comb across their teeth. So right where your, your upper teeth and your lower teeth meet would be where the top of the comb was. And if you take one of those old guns that had that mile a drop and lay it across your teeth, you will look perfectly down the rib. It's... I had an old timer tell me that one day, and sure enough, the next time I was, I, I, my buddies with the guys up there, Robin Hollow in Rhode Island, and you know, I went in there, and sure enough, found an old LC that had a mile to drop, and I laid it across my teeth, and I was perfectly down the middle of that rib. Interesting. So, yeah, it's you know just how you, how you, uh, you know how the how the sport evolves. I think I think we do it better now than they did then, but everybody wanted to shoot with a very heads erect posture. Yeah. And if you look at any of the old tin types or, you know drawings you know that depict shooting back in the day you see they they shot with their heads you know they very erect in in their posture and and you know we we kind of crowd into the gun a little bit now we hitch our shoulder up and kind of incline our heads forward and and i actually think that how we do it now is more effective okay. uh, it's just a little bit more dynamic a little bit more consistent you know instead of that real free and easy just but mind you, you know, you look at Gevin Miles, um, kid from Arizona there. He's won the World Fit Task as well. He's got more of that heads erect posture. So, you know, horses for courses, you know, whatever works for it. Sure. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I've, I've become familiar with some of the vintage guns, and I have one. I've got an old Fox, and it's got, you know, a good fair bit of drop in it. And you see that, that it's very consistent that the drop is that way. And that is not the case with modern guns. So I've, I've kind of wondered, you know, I don't know that I've ever gotten a a squared away answer on it but other than other than people used to shoot with their head higher which which makes sense but it's clearly a lot of those old guns are that way and they're not that way today so something's going on there yeah but you know there was some amazingly good shots back in the day right you know that's uh 
you ever read any of Nash Buckingham stuff, you know, he, uh, he pulled the trigger a bunch and wasn't known for missing a lot. Yeah, yeah, and I think Ansley uh, Ansley Fox was a pretty good shooter as well, and uh, he designed the gun. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was Bogardus as well. Uh, there was lots of lots of great shots. So, you know, there's you know, it's, it's really comes down to if you do the same thing every time, you generally will work out how how you know what it's supposed to look like. Yeah, and that's really the key. You know, it's you know, I can't say one one side or the other is better. You know, it's just how we do it now and how how we learn. You know, it's uh, back back when I started, nobody really understood gun fit. You know, the, the Brits did, you know, the English did. But in this country, guns were set up for a guy who was 5'10 and weighed 185 pounds. You know, that was, you know, the average guy. So they set up guns to, you know, fit the average guy. And I was lucky enough to be, you know, I'm six foot one, you know, just a little bit more than that. And, and uh, you know, I weighed 216 pounds, but that's close enough to the, to what they're making guns for yep. to uh, you know, I can pick a gun up off the rack. And even though it's you know not perfect, I can generally get reasonably good results. I don't think you ever get your best results with a gun that, that isn't, you know, fit to you, you know, to the nth degree, but, but it's, it's one of those kind of things, you know, it's, uh, you know, like I say, I'm generic enough in dimensions that I can get it done with just about any gun. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad you went, I, I'm glad you went there. Cause I did want to, I did want to get your perspective on gun fit. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people listening that don't fit that prototype. I'm pretty close to it as well. I'm six feet and right in that range. So I think I can, you know, I can shoot, shoot those guns relatively well, but I've, I have an old Fox and it's got a lot of drop and a short length of pole, which I've lengthened. And, uh, I've, I've messed around a little bit in the past couple of years and I am, you know, about as far from a gun fitting expert as you can get, but how much do we need to be thinking about gun fit, Andy? Well, if, um, you know, it's it's one of those kind of things. You know, when when the old saying, you know, was coined, "Beware the man with one gun." You know, what they're really talking about was a guy that you know stays with one gun and learns its foibles. Then you know he develops the pictures for you know every angle, speed, and distance target. Yeah. So you know you can basically what it comes down to is if your eye is reasonably over the middle and not a mile over the top of the rib, you know, it's going to shoot where you're looking. And the whole idea is to be able to take advantage of your brain's ability to point. So if your eyes looking down the middle of the gun, then, you know, you're most of the way there. Now, you know, having the right length to pull, you know, when people tuck the gun into their, their elbow like that and say, yeah, it should fit me. All right. Well, that's not really the key. You know, basically when you mount the gun, you want to have no more than two inches from the knuckle of your thumb to the end of your nose. You don't want it more than two inches. You don't want any shorter than an inch. So you've got an inch of play there. Okay. And, you know, the good thing about that is if you, you know, if you're hunting early season and the gun's, you know, at an inch and a quarter, and then you put a, you know, pretty heavy wool coat for later in the season, and now it's at two inches, well, you know, the gun's going to fit you pretty reasonably well. So, you know, there's, it's not a an, an exact science insofar as that we don't mount the gun as consistently as, you know, we think we do. But, you know, if you only have that one gun and you're conversant with its heft and, you know, how to move it and, you know, you're really, that's the only gun you mess with, well, you, you get to learn it pretty well. And that's, you know, so gun fit's important. If, you, if you're going to switch guns a lot, you better set them all up the same. Sure. But, you know, if you've got two or three guns and they're all reasonably the same, then, you know, you can switch between them and, and you'll find that, gosh, I shoot this one really well, and these two okay, but boy, this one I really shoot well. Well, you know, it's generally the one that shoots where you're looking a little better. Yeah. So, you know, gun fit's important, but I, 
it's rare that somebody practices their mount to the point where they're so consistent in their mount that gun fit becomes more important, you know, but the guys that are on the, on the tour now, you know, they practice their mount incessantly and they, you know, they're, and if they're not practicing their mount, they're shooting incessantly. So that's, you know, it, could, it becomes a really important thing at that point. Yeah. You, know, you think about it, if you're shooting a target at 20 yards, you know, if you're a grouse hunter, you know, 20, 25 yards is about max. Well, you know, a lot of times we're shooting sporting clays, you know, 55 yard target is not all that unusual. Well, you make a little mistake at, at 20 yards, you generally have enough pattern to make up for it. But a mistake is compounded by distance. You know, imagine the divergent angle. The farther you get away, the more that angle is magnified by distance. So, you know, gun fit becomes of paramount importance. You know, I, I hear lots of guys say, you know, I'm really good on birds, but, you know, not so good on clays. Well, Okay, so right off the bat, we got to ask, what kind of birds do you shoot? Well, you know, I'm a big quail hunter. Okay, so the dog goes on point. The bird gets up. He's, you know, 8 or 10, 12 yards away. And, you know, you're shooting a maximum. You know, the first shot is, you know, 18, 20 yards, and maybe the second one is a 25. Okay, well, ask that same guy, how do you do on, on passing teal? You know, when you got a teal that's coming by at about 45, you know, and he's got a tailwind, well, you know, how do you do on them? So that's... Now, that really sorts out the men from the boys. You know, sure. There's a lot of different things you can do with a shotgun. You know, if you're good on them, on, you know, on a rooster, you know, big old pheasant gets up. Well, that's a great big bird with a little tiny wing. They don't get going that fast. So you can be really good at them. You know, quail and pheasant aren't that difficult to hit. Neither, neither woodcock. Everybody talks about how, how difficult a woodcock is. I never found a woodcock to be all that difficult, which probably means I'm going to miss the next six I shoot at. But, <laughs> yeah. Know, the thing is, if, if you watch a woodcock, they'll they'll climb above the tag elders that you've just, the dog's pointed them in, and they'll get to the top of that and then take a line. Well, if you just wait for them to get to the top and then take a line and shoot them, boom, there you go. If you're going to take try and take a shot as he's getting to the top of the tag elders, you're going to pop over the top of them. So, you know, if you know the if you know the problem with shooting a woodcock, then you just wait for him to take a line and just try and try and shoot him in the head, you know. And that, you know, when I learned that trick, I hardly ever missed another one. But anyway, it's a... Uh, it's, it, there's so many different things you can do with, you know, when you're out there in Hell's Canyon, you know, and your buddy dog goes on point above you and, the, you know, he flushes a covey of chuckers over top of you and they're, they're coming over, you know, 40, 45 yards up. Oh, my goodness. That is just the biggest thrill to fold one of them. Yeah, I believe you know, of that. Of course, then, then he falls, you know, 400 feet below you and you got to climb down and get them. <laughs> or if you really got a good dog and they marks, you know, that's, that's where having that lab really works out. But anyway, it's a... Uh, Good fit's important, no matter what you're doing. But, you know, if, you, if you're not somebody that's swapping guns all the time, you'll learn the ones that you got. Yeah. All right. Kind of more on shooting with respect to eyesight and focus. We talked about that earlier, and you said you're trying to see the eye of the grouse, and it's kind of it's that aim small, miss small, right? Like you, you, you admitted you're not going to see the eye on every bird. But are there things that you – are there things that you tell people – in order to help them get a better visual lock on the target, visual focus, and, you know, might that be take your time until you get focus or, you know, I mean, obviously sometimes we're just limited by the cover, especially if we talk rough girls wood. Now, I, I realized that when I went out to the prairie, I shot considerably better and I got a little bit high on my horse because I could actually, I could actually see the birds and I was humbled really fast when I came back home. It can yeah, it, it can be a little intoxicating to actually be able to shoot at something that you can see all of. Yeah. You know, uh, here's the thing. Here's the thing to understand about how your eyes work. All right. So your eyes are attracted to motion. 
So okay. think about, you know, somebody says, hey, look at that deer, and they're pointing down in the woods, and you're looking, and you're looking, and you're not seeing it until it flicks an ear or the tail. Yep. And that movement, all of a sudden, it's like Scotty beamed them down. Oh, there's a whole deer. So your eyes are attracted to motion, okay? Now, combine that with the auditory stimulation of a roughed grouse rumbling out of cover. I mean, when you hear those wings, I don't know about you, but, you know, for the first four or five years that I hunted grouse, I'd have to cut a complete backflip. <laughs> you know, yeah. That. About I, mean, I heard those wings. My heart just wow, and I dumped two shells just as quick as I go, boom, boom. Like <laughs> watch them fly away from there, you know? Yeah. So you have more time than you think. You really do. So when you hear the wings, look out and, and you want to have your vision in in a soft focus. You want to be looking for movement. Because if you can pick up the movement of those wings, your eyes will be attracted to that target. So that's how you use your eyes. If you're looking for a specific grouse, you're really fighting it. But if you're looking for movement, when you hear the wings, you know the wings are moving. So when you hear those wings, look over to where you hear that noise and just look for movement. And, you know, be getting your front hand moving toward that sound. Yeah. And again, this is why it's so important to have orange. You know, when you're walking through the woods, you need to be regularly checking in. If I can't see my partner, you know, I'll let out a whoop, you know. And, and you know, there's a whoop for the dog. There's a whistle for the dog. and There's a whoop for your partner. Yeah. So, you know, when I hunt with my cousin and I, we know what we're saying, you know, where you at? And he'll say, oh, here. And now you know where they are. And the, the whole reason for that is if you get a shot at a grouse, you don't want to have to first try and figure out where your partner is. You right. want to know where he is at all times and, and have set up your shooting lanes because of it. So, you know, when you're walk, working through the woods, if the bird gets up and heading to you, you're yelling, bird, bird. Even though you see him, you know it's going to go by. You're, you see the bird. You know it's going toward your partner. You're yelling bird and you're not shooting because it's not your shot. It's his shot. Yeah. So, you know, that's how this, the strategy happens. You know, you're looking for movement. You hear the wings, you're looking for movement. And if it happens to be going to a place where you can shoot, just get your front hand to the head. Get your front hand to the head. And if you're trying to see that eye, I tell you what, in my career, I've, I've seen the eye three times when that bird was maybe 20 feet away from me. And I shot the head off all three times. <laughs> oh, man. You know, and that's. That's something that, you know, I did it on a wood pigeon in England. I I had an old timer down in, in uh, West Virginia. And I mean, this guy was middle 90s. And somebody told me that he used to shoot rough grouse for the restaurants in the area. So I, I started talking to him about it. And I asked him, I said, what's the most effective thing you can do for shooting a rough grouse? He says, well, once you corn the road, you wait for their heads to line up. So you get more with one shot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean. He knew what I was asking, but you know, right, he right. still had a pretty good sense of humor at you know, 95. <laughs> but anyway, I said, no, really, come on, tell me, what, what's the thing? He says, well, if I could see their eye, I would almost always shoot them in their head, in the head. And, you know, you don't turn the meat up too bad. And that's like, really? Well, I mean, it wasn't a week later, I chased the grouse out into a finger of cover, and I knew the bird, I saw where it landed. I, I had seen where the bird landed, knew right where it was. And I, I made room for it to come back through the cover. It was a big potato field all around it. And it was just this peninsula of cover. And my dog, I was hunting over my Springer, and when he flushed it, it bird came by me, and same deal. It was, I mean, maybe 18 feet away, about the, about the length of a good old town canoe as it went by me. And I could see that black beady eye, and I pulled the trigger, and the bird came down, and not a feather come off it. You know, and it was, I mean, really, you'd expect it a pillow at that distance. Yep. And the dog retrieved it, and I had shot him from the eyes forward, <laughs> with right off. And, you know, it's like, I mean, this was a week after the guy told me if I could see their eye, it almost always hit him in the head. Yep. Well, a year later, I'm in a pigeon blind with a guy named Nigel Walpole. 
in uh, in uh, Norfolk in England, and we're shooting wood pigeons. And I told him the story about shooting this grouse. And you know, after this guy told me about seeing the eye, and I shot the head off the grouse, and I saw Nigel kind of look at me, you know, kind of with the hairy eyeball, like you know, yeah, really, <laughs> you expect me to believe that. Well, just then I heard wings and I looked up and there was a wood pigeon right over top of me and I could see its eye. And I threw the gun up there and shot the head off that wood pigeon. It was the very next bird I shot after finishing telling the story. <laughs> you, got, mean, you got some real timing, Andy. <laughs> I, you know, it was really, I mean, it was so unusual. And, you know, it's funny. Over time, you think, I wonder if that really happened. Well, I saw Nigel a couple of years ago and he said, remember you tell me that story about shooting the oil off that grouse and then you did it and the next shot on the pigeon i said gosh you know, i was wondering if i was remembering that right Nigel <laughs> <laughs> remembered it just like i did man yeah that's no, uh it's one of those things you know how you can look at a target generically or you can look at it specifically and, and specific really seeing some specific part of the bird like the eye or the crest on the back of the head or the beak you know that's if you're focused on that that's where your gun will tend to go and it's the same thing shooting a clay target. You know, if you're looking at a clay target hard enough that you can see how the sun shines on the front end of it and how there's a shadow underneath it, well, you're looking at that so hard that you're feeding good information to your subconscious and the gun winds up going where it's supposed to be. This is why we hardly ever miss a bird that surprises us. Yep. And if you're in a, if you're in a duck blind and all of a sudden you hear wings and look up and there's a big old green head, you throw the gun up there and just, you know, just center punch him, boom, down he comes. So now you're looking around, and oh, here comes one. It's flying in the same wing beats as the last one, but you see this one out there three, 400 yards away. And he's coming right over the blind just like the last one. Well, you know, he gets over the blind. You put the gun up, and you ride him like a pony. Put the crosshairs up at eight, eight power, and you shoot four foot behind him twice, maybe three times. <laughs> What's the difference, one to the other? One is vision executed. One, you just got to look at the bird, and you're subconscious. So you're looking at that bird so hard, your front hand just takes you out in front. And then the next one, you're trying to see the barrel, see the bird, see the barrel, see the bird, which is aiming. You know, and aiming is the worst thing you can do is shoot a shotgun. You're better off leaving the gun down, and when the bird gets to where he's as close as he's going to be, just throw the gun up and pull the trigger. That would be the way to handle that situation. You know, just let your let your subconscious take the, take the helm. Okay. So I, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, we have been talking a lot about sort of the conscious mind, and we're having this conscious conversation about all this stuff that's supposed to happen in an incident, and – you know, if people haven't thought about it, I mean, I think I think most of us realize that there's a lot of subconscious athletic movement that goes into shooting. And you on uh, Justin's podcast, Behind the Break, you talked about this thing that you had with the general and the private. And I'll have you describe that a little bit. But that's really, you know, it's specific to the sporting clays application. And ever since I heard that, I've been wanting to ask you, you know, how that might apply to you know, a hunting situation because we're not stepping up to a station saying pull. It's a little bit different, but but give us a little background there on on the general and the private and the subconscious mind. Well, one of the things that sporting clay shooters deal with is it's called one one targetitis, right? Last paritis is actually what it is. And basically, what it is is you kill the first pair, you kill the second pair, you kill the third pair, and then the you know, last pair is okay. All I got to do is one more pair, and I run the station, and you go pull dead lost. So it's last paritis. You know, you get to that last pair and you just do something different. And so I've spent, you know, a good part of a 30-year career shooting sporting clays. You know, I mean, 1991 was when I quit being a pipe fitter. I've been, I've been making a living with a shotgun ever since. And if you got to look at me, you'd see I don't miss too many meals. Um, <laughs> the thing about the general and the private, okay, you can think about it this way. There's 
the strategy of what you're going to do to a particular target. Now, let's just imagine we've got a crossing bird. You know, if you've ever shot any ski, imagine you've got a 20-yard crosser, and on report goes the 16-yard trapper going straight away. This is, you know, the same situation I described in, in uh, Jason's podcast. Yep. So, you know, a 20-yard crosser, I mean, that is not, unu- not an unusual target to see in the grouse woods. And what I do to that is, you know, I, I just I start moving the gun, and when I see about a foot and a half a lead, I pull the trigger. Now, this is on a clay target. Understand that birds are different. Birds start off slow and speed up. Targets start off fast and slow down. So, typically, you're going to see more gap on a, on a clay target than you are on a, on a live bird. Okay. Not always true. I mean, if you're shooting a green-winged teal that's, you know, coming by, I mean, those things can be doing 60. I mean, they can be really ripping. That's where knowing how to shoot that 90-millimeter target off the tower at 45 yards is really going to come in handy. But in this situation, it's just a real meat-potatoes target. It's just a 20-yard crosser, not too far. And then you've got the going-away bird. Now, the going-away bird is the only danger there is moving too hard vertically and popping over the top. So here's your, your first thought on the pair is okay, I'm gonna get a gun, I'm gonna get a lateral movement, you know, from left to right, and I'm gonna see, you know, just some gap, you know, foot, foot and a half, somewhere in there. That's what I'm gonna see. And then I'm gonna pull the trigger right over top of the trap of the second target so I can drop straight down. And when that second one comes out, I'm gonna gently move to it and I'm just gonna to touch the target at the end of the gun and pull the trigger. So you've talked about two things: the move and where the move is gonna wind up, which we call the picture, the barrel target relationship, the picture. So you're thinking about moves and pictures. Now, once you think about what you're going to do to the first one and what you're going to do to the second one, you've got two shells in the gun, so you close the gun, you call pull. Now, at this point, all you do is feed good information to your subconscious. Now, understand the general is the tech. Now, imagine a general used to be a soldier. You know, 30 years ago, he was the private in boot camp that was you know, running five miles in the morning and then spending all day on the rifle range and you know, learning how to follow orders, learning how to how to shoot accurately, learning how to fight. Well, that guy needs guidance, right? So 30 years down the road, the guys that have shown some aptitude to understand strategy now get promoted, and now he's a general. Now, the general, you know, he's not getting up and running in the morning. He's not going to the rifle range and shooting all day. You know, he's, he's studying you know, tactics, and he's, you know, he's more cerebral about fighting a war. Yeah. This is the guy that has to direct the private. So think of your conscious setup. Your, your tactician is saying, I'm going to make a lateral move from left to right to a spot about a foot, foot and a half out in front, somewhere in there. Then I'm going to drop straight down, and I'm going to gently come onto that second bird. What he's really saying is, okay, private, here's what we're going to do here. We're going to make a lateral move to a foot and a half on this first target. Then I'm going to drop straight down, and we're going to gently come to center of mass on that second one. That's what we're going to do. Got it? And the, gen- the private has no voice. He just salutes. Now, the general at this point has to get the heck out of the way. So all you got to do at that point is say pull. Now, when you say pull, all you got to you know, at that point, you say pull and you look hard at the bird. You really feed good information about that target. You see it. You see where it starts. You see where it winds up. And all of a sudden, the gun's at a foot and a half and bangs. Now, the barrel drops right down. And when that second one comes out, it gently moves up and centers that second bird. So this is shooting sporting clays, right? Yeah. So there's your first pair. Now, typically, you're going to shoot four, three or four pairs per station. That's kind of what we do now in the sport. So now you got another pair to do. And you think about it again. The general says to the private, that was good. That was just right. So 
lateral move to a foot, foot and a half, somewhere in there, drop straight down, center of mass gently. Got it? This is about a move and a picture. A move and a picture. He's thinking about the move and the picture for the first one. He's thinking about the move and the picture for the second one. And now he calls pull, and he just looks hard, feeds good information to that private, and the gun goes boom, boom. Now, you've killed two pairs in a row. You're halfway done. At the third pair, you think, man, I'm right in the middle of these today. Now, understand the general just said, you're doing good, Private. You're right in the middle of these today. Notice that has nothing to do with the move in the picture. Yeah. Nothing. So this is no focus. But because because you just got it done 10, 15 seconds ago, you call a pull, and you get it done on the first one, but instead of a big ball of dirt, it's a little dink. And then you come down, and you shoot that second one. You move a little too hard, and you, and you get it, but it's only knocked in half. It's one of them razor blade loads. Now, <laughs> When you have thrown 377 BBs at a target and hit it with one, that means you missed with 376 of them. Everybody knows what a one pellet hit looks like. <laughs> and then you go over to the second one and you do the same thing. Well, what you just did now is you set up your last pairs. Okay, okay, you got it done, but oh, boy, you almost messed that up. Don't mess it up. All right, don't mess this up. All right, make sure you hit this last pair, hit this last pair. So what you've done if you've gone from being what's known as action focus, which is the action you're going to perform, guess what the action consists of? a move, and a picture. When you're concentrating on the move and the picture, which you did for the first pair, and then again for the second pair, when you get to that third pair and you have no focus, but you get it done, you've opened the door to wrong focus. Because when you get to that last pair, you're thinking, all right, don't mess it up now. Don't mess it up. So now what you do is you ride the first one like a pony and you shoot it way off to the to the right, so you're out of line for the second bird. And if you happen to hit that first one, you, you race over and pull the trigger on the second bird, and because your gun's moving wrong, it, your dynamics... You know, how your momentum is generated is wrong. You wind up missing in front or over the top or whatever. So you switch from being action focused, which is the general telling the private what to do, to being result focus oriented, which has nothing to do with how you're moving the gun or where you're moving it to. Now, you might wonder how does this affect, how does this fit in to bird shooting? Sure. Well, if you missed the last five woodcock you shot at, you're really worried about whether you're going to miss the sixth one, aren't you? Yeah. Okay, so how about you start thinking about, you know what, I'm really going to see this as hard as I can, and I'm not going to shoot too stinking fast. That's always what we do. We wind up shooting too quick. So I'm going to get a really good look, and I'm going to make sure that I get the gun to that big, long beak on the next quarter I shoot. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to mess this up by going too fast or shooting a blur. I'm going to see the target, and I'm going to get the gun to the target, come hell or high water, that's what I'm going to do. So right there, what you've done is you put the onus on you to get back to how you're moving the gun and where you're moving it to. So there's it's exactly the same information shooting birds as it is to shooting clays. No different. Now, clays, again, tend to move faster. used to be that when I started into bird season, I would miss in front of the first five or six grouse I shot. It was just the way it was going to be. It took me five or six years to really figure out, you know, you're just used to your clay speeds. The birds are way slower. So slow down. Take a little bit longer to see them and just gently get to the head. Well, now I don't I don't have that five or six sighting in grouse anymore. Now I'm, you know, pretty, I practice my mount. I practice my mount walking through the woods, which is really funny because every time I put the gun in my face, my dogs think I'm about to shoot yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> <you know? laughs> Yeah, but uh, but I practice my mount, you know, walking through the woods, and and you know, here's another thing: if you're if your target gun has a single trigger over and under, 
and you're, you're going out with your Fox that has two triggers. What I like to do is I like to, you know, at home, I'll, I'll practice taking the safety off and then touching. I don't, I don't tend to dry fire it. Yeah. I will touch both triggers. I'll touch the front. I'll touch the back. Okay. And I've done it for so long now that when I shoot a side-by-side, I, I don't have to worry about it. I automatically, I'm looking for a second trigger. When I feel those barrels laying sideways in my hand, I'm looking for the second trigger. And I, I can tell you I know that because my dad's got a beautiful little Parker reproduction 28 gauge that only has one trigger, and I can shoot it exactly one time. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be hunt, hunting for that second trigger behind the trigger bow. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Man, that, so, so, yeah, key takeaway there is – think about think about actions you know you know it's it's kind of a, a lot of that you know with with sports and you know have a short-term memory don't be beating yourself up about missing something and think about action you know action focus i'm going to take my time i'm going to get that gun up and i'm going to move that barrel to that bird's head i mean that that makes a lot of sense you know it's really funny uh, i had uh, i worked for browning years ago and they used to take me uh, duck hunting in the great great salt lake and uh, my friend Scott Grange, I was there with his brother Randy. So Scott was in one blind, and Randy and I were in another. And Randy was—I'm uh, pretty sure it was a new gun, and uh, and it was shooting about a foot over where he was looking. And there were so many ducks that year, and I, I kept saying to him, "I said, Randy, you're you're missing over top." And like four shots in a row, he'd missed. And I said, "You're a foot over." How about the next duck you come by, you try and miss him a foot under. And this duck came by, and he just center punched it and he goes holy cow i never would have thought they was shooting that high and you know it's it's funny how it works but i don't think he ever changed the gun i think he just went from there he just started floating everything you know he started shooting under you know just holding under the line yeah there were so many ducks that year i think he you know he had his limit in about 15 minutes after that but what was funny you know we're right in the middle of a duck hunt and i'm giving him a shooting lesson you know and right uh yeah it's funny to you know see people's brain just sort something out and just you know, start pedaling from there. You know, he, he hardly missed after that. He just needed to know where his gun was shooting. Yep. Which is, you know, one of the reasons why it's really good to go to the sporting clays range before the bird season starts. You know, this is really a pet peeve of mine to watch a guy that's got a really good dog that's that's trying really, really hard. And, you know, think about it. You know, when a when a pointer comes in, a setter or an English pointer or a German shore, it doesn't matter the dog, but imagine every now and then they're going to be coming with the wind and they're going to run over top of a bird. Yep. And, you know, they'll, they'll stop to flush, you know, because most of the good ones, they realize they messed up. They stop to flush, but, you know, they goof up. And, and you know, invariably their owner will give them, you know, a butt chewing for messing up. This is the same guy that, you know, 10 minutes later when the dog does it perfectly, locks up, you know, beautiful point, guy walks in, grouse gets up and flies straight away and he misses it twice. You know, I mean, I always tell them the same thing. I said, that dog ought to come over and bite you on a butt cheek. You know, if your dog is trying his heart out and you're not prepared, then you really should be ashamed of yourself. Your yeah. dog's trying his hardest and you haven't done gone to the range and shot your gun and got conversing and, you know, got your got your shooting wheels under you, then you're only, you're, you're letting the team down. And I just, I always see guys yelling at their dogs for that. You know, and they and they never get. You know, I I generally will chew them out. <laughs> a nice job, then. You know, you really lost that up. You know, but it's always the way. You know, now that I've said that, think back to how many times you've seen a guy that's just really, really ranking on his dog, and then when the dog does it right, he drops the ball. Oh yeah. You know. Yeah. That's one of my pet peeves. You know, my dog's doing good. I want to be doing good. Yeah, absolutely. So for the guys and girls listening, Andy, that 
you know, this is, this is a perfect time of year. You know, it's beginning of May. We got a few months left of us uh, before hunting seasons kick off and it's a, uh, it's a good time to practice shooting. What do you recommend? Get out there on the sporting clays course. I mean, what else? You mentioned a lot of good coaches out there. Uh, you know, for me, sporting clays is so, so interesting to me that, you know, all the different angle speeds and distances and the rabbits, you know, and teal and Shondells, you know, big parking targets. I mean, it's just, I just love shooting a shotgun at all those different situations but i'm here to tell you if you've got a trap in a skeet range and you go out there and you don't shoot don't shoot trap and skeet for the game of trap and skeet you're not looking to go out there and shoot mounted gun and, and shoot 25 targets go out there and shoot at low gun i mean skeet was invented by a guy named william harden foster yep. who was a grouse hunter yeah you know and he was he was trying to set up a game that was going to mimic what a grouse would do to you in the woods and he did a pretty damn fair job of it so if you get out there and you start with a gun, you know, at a low gun position and you call for the bird and don't move until the target's out, you can get some excellent practice for bird season. You know, and it's, it's really, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. I mean, that was a game that was made for practicing your bird shooting and, and traps the same. You know, if you get on a 16 yard line and you practice, you know, just locking the, the machine you don't have to deal with the, the oscillating target. You can just lock in one going away bird and shoot it from all five different positions. You know, just, I mean, if you're a, if you're a quail or a uh, pheasant or, or a hun hunter, yep, you know, yep. most of those birds are going to be going away from you. It's going to be a, a good thing to be able to, to shoot a going away bird. I had a guy come to me in Montana one year. It was, it was really funny. This guy was a Marine. He says to me, you know, he said, at one time I was an expert marksman with a rifle and, you know, I, my friends out here invite me to come bird hunting with them because in the eight years I've been coming out here to hunt birds, I've killed like four birds. And he said, I know that I was shooting at one and hitting the other one. You know, that's kind of how it happened. And he said, I'd kind of like to figure out what's going wrong here. Well, when somebody tells you something like that, it's almost always, you know, a major issue, you know, like an eye dominance thing. Sure enough, we tested him out. He was so left eye dominant, shooting off the right shoulder. And, he, and he'd heard that, you know, he's supposed to shoot with both eyes open when you shoot shotgun. So, I mean, the guy was doing his best, but, you know, he'd missed out on the eye dominance thing. So I, I showed him how to shoot off the left shoulder. I just, we walked in the trap bird and I showed him, you know, from the first peg, I showed him how to move to, you know, with his, with his right hand and bring the gun into his face and got him hitting that. And then we stood right behind it and got him hitting that. And then we went over to take five, got him hitting that. And that's all we worked on. I said, listen, you know, now that you got an idea how this works, you know, you'll be fine now. Uh, so anyway, I get a Christmas card from him later that year. And he says, my friends are a little mad at you because I shot my limit this year. They didn't get to shoot my limit. <laughs> so that was all we worked on was that one locked in going away bird, you know, because he was hunting huns and sharp tails. And that was, you know, that even if he had one that had something of an angle on it, you know, if he just got his front hand moving like I showed him how to do, it was wasn't too difficult to get that up to the front end of them. Yeah. You know, and I got, I got several Christmas cards from that guy and it was always very satisfying to know that, you know, he just, I mean, it, the whole lesson didn't take an hour. So you can get some really good practice in just on a trap or a ski field. You know, it's, it doesn't have to be anything fancy. Just don't play the game for playing trap where you shoot pre-mounted. Yeah. That's kind of defeating the purpose. You're, you're learning how to, you know, play the game of trap then, you know, treat it like a going away bird, like, like a hun will do or a quail will or pheasant and uh you know just work on it work on moving that front end of the target and just easing into your face and pulling the trigger you know you'll find that you have a lot more time than you think 
you know, I, I tell people all the time, you know, a shell that's doing 1,200 feet per second, you know, that's like 900 miles an hour. Yeah. Now, that target's maybe doing 45. So, you know, if you put the gun in the right place, it can't outrun that shot. So, you know, practicing practicing on a trapper ski field can be very valid if you don't treat it like the game of trapper ski. Sure. It's good stuff, Andy. I really appreciate it, man. There's lots to chew on here. We could uh, we could go on and on, but uh, I think we'll I think we'll call it good there. And I'd love to have you back on at some point. We'll have to put our heads together and, and think about you know maybe we do a little Q and A or something. But this was a, this was a ton of fun. I really appreciate you taking the time. I think the listeners That's are gonna. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, you're good at it. Years that I I haven't lost any of my enthusiasm for it. It's just the most fun. You know, it's funny, since I broke my leg, I haven't, I haven't been able to shoot. I, I started shooting like four or five days ago, and, and I went to the ski field to just kind of get my, my fundamentals down. So, you know, it's not like I'm telling you one thing and doing it different, right. or something different. But it's amazing how much, I mean, I haven't gone 30 years. I haven't gone, you know, well, it's like it was five weeks before I pulled the trigger since I broke my leg. And uh, you cannot imagine how much I missed it. You know, I was just frothing at the mouth to get out there and pull the trigger. So it's could could be interesting for the U.S. Open. I don't think I'm really caring so much about winning. I'm just so dying to go and have fun shooting with my friends. And them and them always does a great job. You know, they always put a. It's always a great event. You know, it's run well and it's you know targets are are really fun and it's just you know if if folks got out and and spent a little time on the sporting clays range, I think they they'd uh, really appreciate the game and and I can't help but really help your your game game shooting yeah um on that note do you know the i've heard david talk about this do you know the what's the organization kind of the national organization for sporting clays because i've heard him talk about you know their membership and i'd like to sort of make that known it's it's called the nsca the national sporting clays association okay and they're uh, they're based in uh in san antonio okay and uh it's uh, they're also the affiliate for fitask and fitask is uh it's a French acronym that I always butcher, but I'll give it a go. It's uh, Fédération Internationale de Tir en Armes Sportives de Chasse. <laughs> Be two years learn how to say that, and I know <laughs> I, I mean a Frenchman right now is you know pulling his hair out. Sure, sure. Uh, but it stands for International Sporting Clays. Okay. And it's uh, it's a little more uh, complicated game. You know, instead of two traps per station, they'll. You know, you shoot around to 25, and there could be six or eight different machines on a on what's known as a parkour, and it's uh, it's just, gosh, it's fun. Really, I've won I've won four national fitness championships, and they're some of my proudest moments because you got to know how to shoot to be able to play that game. Man, awesome. Well, I uh, I wish you the best of luck this weekend, Andy. I, maybe uh, you know, maybe you'll have that kind of low expectation. You, you're loose and shooting free. Maybe uh, maybe you'll surprise folks some folks out there. You know, it's just, uh, you know, I've always said that fun is the, is the grease that makes a wheel go around. You know, so many people go to a competition and they're just working so hard. They're just not sure. not enjoying themselves. And, you know, I, I've managed to, to get it done at some major events where I just really didn't care win or lose. I was just shooting. And, uh, you know, if I could if I could bottle that, I'd, I'd be a whole lot better. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. I've managed to pull it off a number of times, but, you know, it's not something that I can I could sum it up at will anymore. Yeah. I think, you know, you get a little older and, you know, one of the things that happens is you don't really have the burning desire to go to the range and, you know, really put the time in. But by the same token, I've done this so much. I, I really know how to do it. I really don't have to spend a whole lot of time doing it, but it's, um, I don't know. It's just the way of the world. You know, you, 
desire is where it's at. And, and I won, I won a lot of stuff in my, in my time. And, you know, now I really, I get a huge kick out of showing other people how to do it. That's probably more of a, I get more of a charge out of that now than actually winning a tournament. Yeah. Although it's been long enough for me since I won a tournament that I might've forgot how that feels like. <laughs> yeah, you never know. I think it might could be a good time this weekend, so we'll see. Yeah, absolutely, man. Well, your your enthusiasm and your passion was was really evident on this podcast. And again, I, I can't say it enough. I, I do appreciate your time, Andy. Thank you very much. Good luck this weekend, and you and I will keep in touch. All right, man. Thanks. Okay. Take care, Andy. Safe travels. See ya. You've been listening to the Project Upland podcast. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And a reminder that this podcast was brought to you by Pine Ridge Grouse Camp, Dog Trick Callers, Yukonuba Dog Food, Gordian Sons Outfitters, and Dakota 283 Kennels. Find more podcasts, articles, films, and much more at projectupland.com. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Project Upland Podcast. yourself podcast if you enjoyed this show then you might want to check out my show as well we highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode we cover all topics related to hunting dogs check out gun dog yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes